0: I want to invite everybody, whether uh, here um, via live stream or here in person, to turn to Colossians 1, looking at verses 24, Colossians 1, 24 through uh, 2, verse 5. We're in a series uh, uh, about the glory of Christ and the treasures of Christ that are being revealed. We're walking through the book of Colossians, this epiphany. In 2010, a New Mexico art collector named Forrest Fenn placed $2 million worth of his jewels, gold nuggets, diamonds, sapphires, and rare artifacts in a bronze chest. And then he, he buried this treasure in a forest nestled within the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico. Soon after, uh, Mr. Fenn published a memoir called The Thrill of the Chase, and in that memoir, He told readers about this treasure and challenged them to go find it. In order to help them, he gave them a uh, poem in the book, The Thrill of the Chase. Don't go on Amazon buying this right now. Um, 24-line poem with cryptic clues to help people find it. And that's the only thing that he gave them. Word got out and tens of thousands of people searched after the treasure they gave their best efforts to find it. They spent their nights and weekends planning, plotting, searching, risking, problem solving to find this treasure. They climbed mountains, hiked dangerous trails, wandered desolate canyons, all for the joy of uncovering that bronze box. They wanted the privilege of pulling it out of the ground and uh, dusting off the dirt and opening it up and running their fingers through all those treasures. The sapphires, the gold nuggets, they wanted to take them as their own, hold them as their own, be an art collector themselves. So this went on for 10 years. Uh, And some people died in the process of trying to find this treasure. Some people had to get rescued as a result of trying to find this treasure. But after 10 years, Someone finally found the box. They remained anonymous, uh, but I think that they would say this, the treasure was worth the steep personal cost. Now, in this morning's reading from the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul makes a stunning admission, and he says this, that he pays a steep personal cost so that others will discover the treasure of Jesus Christ. He pays the cost of his life, everything he's got, so that the Colossians and people around the world and throughout time will discover the greatest, most valuable treasure in all of the world, which is Jesus. And Paul is glad. He is as glad or more as the people who plan to find the $2 million treasure he wants to pay the cost to. Um, He wants the Colossians to be able to, and us to be able to run Their fingers, run our fingers through the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge and spirit and life of Jesus Christ and make it their own forever. There's a way in which, in fact, Paul's suffering, his very suffering, is the medium that reveals these treasures to all the world, reveals these treasures to the people that go to the church that he has planted in Asia Minor, and his suffering continues to reveal the treasures. Of Christ, but not just Paul. We also have the opportunity through our suffering to reveal the treasure of Jesus Christ to our coworkers, friends, neighbors, and city. Christ is a treasure worth the cost and more. We share the cost so that others will discover the treasure. And we're gonna walk through this portion of Scripture together in Colossians. We're gonna consider this this idea from from three different angles. The first is the cost to pay, the cost to pay. Secondly, is the treasure to reveal. And then finally, there's a reward to celebrate. There's a cost to pay, there's a treasure to reveal. And then finally, there's a reward that we can all celebrate together. Let's consider the cost to pay. The cost to pay is the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. Suffering with Christ, better said. Let's look at verse 24. Colossians 1, verses 24 and 25. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you To make the word of God fully known, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book *The Four Hour Workweek* by Tim Ferriss. Anyone ever heard about *The Four Hour Workweek*? The premise of this book is this: you can eliminate hassle and maximize profits through techniques. It's basically here's how to way to have rewards without headaches. And um, this is not Paul's way of being a missionary. And an apostle. Paul does not figure out how to life hack his way into gospel ministry. It is a uh, personal cost path of gospel ministry. He was also delighted that this was his path. I think Paul would have been deeply disappointed if there was a life hack for our work week zone and path to finish his calling. He actually appreciated the opportunity to pay a cost. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. How many of us can say that about the things that bug us, that we rejoice in the cost that we pay? Many of us complain about the cost that we pay, even if in our own hearts we grumble about the sufferings. But Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings, and he is willingly taking up his fair share and more of the afflictions of Christ in his flesh for the sake of the church. Now, what did this look like for Paul? What was the nature of his suffering? Well, here's just a sample. Paul spent many years as a prison inmate. Many of his best years, in fact, were spent as a prison inmate. And in our day, that's very difficult to take on that sentence. That is a major decrease in the quality of life. But in the Roman Empire, it was super bad. They didn't. They barely fed you. They barely protected you. They barely kept you warm or or cold, depending on the seasons of the year. He was just often cold and hungry and locked up, not able to be with the people that he so loved to be with. Paul was often beaten. He was whipped. He was punched. Paul was an often beat up prisoner. That's basically his life is he's a beat up, imprisoned man. Paul was in a devastating shipwreck, and he escaped within an inch of his life. Paul worked with his hands to the bone to make tents to support himself, and he lived on very little. He was constantly in great anguish, emotionally speaking, and he was concerned about the churches that he planted and the people that came to Jesus under his ministry, but he couldn't like, follow up with them. He couldn't be with them. He just wanted that so badly. Paul was rejected by friends. He experienced painful conflict. And he dealt with rivals and smear campaigns until the end of his life. And what's even more, Paul was subject to demonic harassment um, and torment. And he actually asked Jesus personally, please make this stop. And Jesus said, this is actually my path for you. And my grace is sufficient for you. Now, if you think about all of the, the physical costs Paul was paying, the emotional cost Paul was playing, the economic cost Paul was paying. I mean, that spiritual cost Paul was playing, like adding up, adding up, and yet he can say, I rejoice, I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. And so just like we saw last week, we don't feel pity for Christ for the cost that he paid on the cross. He was glad to pay that cost Let's not pity Paul the Apostle either. Let's not feel bad for him and pity him. It's not false humility. There's a cascade of gladness in the book of Colossians, and it begins with the Father who is pleased to dwell with his Son. He's pleased to give his Son and for the fullness of God to dwell bodily in his Son. And the Son is pleased to dwell with us. He's pleased to give his life for us, to reconcile enemies to to himself. And then... uh, The Apostle Paul, who is a recipient of the the grace of Jesus, is glad to pay the cost for the sake of the body. He's actually glad to pour his life out so that people can experience the life of Christ and recover the treasure of Christ. And the body of Christ to this day continues to suffer, continues to pay the cost. We are the body of Christ, and the body of Christ has always been a suffering body. Suffering is a privilege, my friends. It is a privilege. It's actually something we rejoice in. Remember what Jesus said in his Beatitudes Rejoice and be glad. Leap for joy on the day that they say false things about you for my sake. For so they said about the prophets before you, the holy people before you. There's something about suffering that is a great and incredible privilege. In fact, one Polish uh, woman of God, speculated that if angels had the ability to envy human beings, they would envy us in part for the suffering because of how close our suffering brings us to Jesus Christ, closer than any angel could get to him. And if we are called to suffering, there will be grace for the suffering. There will be grace to rejoice in the suffering, and there will be incredible growth and reward in eternity. This is one of the most incredible privileges that you and I could ever receive one of the strangest and most valuable gifts we could ever receive from the Lord is not only the suffering, but the grace to suffer well and the grace to suffer redemptively. Now, some might be asking this, is Paul claiming that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was insufficient? Did Paul think that Christ's afflictions weren't enough, that they were lacking for salvation? Is he making up for something that Christ failed to do? And it's important when you're interpreting Scripture to always look at the context, what comes before and what comes after. And if you do that in this text and you just read the book of Colossians, you see that part of the, the, the very foundational reason that Paul's writing the book of Colossians is to argue for the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. Christ is enough. You don't need to add on extra regulations and extra things in order to get to him. His sacrifice is enough. It is sufficient for us. If you look at all of Paul's letters, that is only underlined and put in bold and highlighted. Christ's sacrifice is enough, and let's celebrate it and live into it. There's no adding to it. There's no earning it. Yes, we are fully united to Jesus by grace. We don't earn that. Yet because we are united with him, we share his sufferings to prepare us for the glory. And this is a deep mystery. There's no glory without suffering. We're not earning glory. We're preparing for it. And this is also about a deep personal connection with Jesus. Do you want to be united with Jesus and share all the things that he has for you? Everything good. Suffering is part of the good. And Paul sees that, and he sees that it's, it's this long. It's like light and momentary affliction, but the reward is eternal. The reward is outlasting everything and more. Yes, the work of Jesus on the cross is complete. It is complete. It is complete. It is complete. It is done. And we can celebrate that. The work of Jesus is complete, yet the way of Jesus continues. The way of the cross continues. Jesus himself said, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will find it and find it forever. Whenever you see the church growing and gospel, uh, the gospel of Jesus expanding to new people, there will be personal suffering from pioneering saints. It's one of, as Robert Coleman said, it is one of the, um, like things that no one talks about in church growth is the role of suffering. George Harley was a Yale-trained medical doctor, metalworker, and map maker who became, of all things, a Methodist missionary. Um, he went to Liberia in the early 1900s to establish two things, a hospital uh, and a church. George walked with his wife, uh, who was pregnant at the time with their firstborn son. They walked 17 miles to the village where they made their home. For five years, uh, Dr. Harley labored among the Liberians there. And every week he would say, uh, I invite you to the service that we're having on Sunday. He would care for them medically and he would invite them to church on Sunday. And for five years, Nearly no one showed up to any service that he offered. It was basically him and his wife and their son when, they came, when, when he came along. And he wanted them so much to hear about God's love and the work of Jesus. And so, but no one came for five years. Now, uh, when his son was around five years old, he uh, tragically became gravely sick and died And Dr. Harley had to do everything for the funeral. There was no help at all. He had to dig the grave. He had to make the casket with his own hands. He had to lead the service. He had to bury his son. And it was all by himself. And he was so overwhelmed with grief that as he laid his son's casket into the ground, he just put his hands in his face and he just wept, and he just wept, and he wept, and he wept. And there was a, a villager walking by, one of the village elders walking by, and he saw Dr. Harley, and he, he gently lifted up his face. He, he held Dr. Harley's face in his hands and looked at him, looked at his whole visage, and, and gingerly laid his face back down on the, the dirt. He ran, he ran so fast back to his village and he announced, the doctor weeps for us. The doctor weeps with us. The doctor weeps. And the next service was packed. And for the next 30 years, in fact, gospel ministry made incredible headway, not only in that village, but in all of Liberia in part, through the sacrifices of the body of Christ, paid very steeply, very personally, by people like Dr. Harley and his wife. Now, that's a far away and dramatic story. But what about closer to home, in the land of parking tickets and potholes and snowdrifts? <laughs> well, let me tell you. The vitality of the gospel in our city, whether at Emmanuel or at other gospel churches, have come at a great personal cost of loving saints, many of whom are in your midst, sitting with you right now, many of them live streaming right now. They have fasted and prayed for years. They have uh, held all-night prayer vigils. They have served faithfully. They have given sacrificially. Many lived in Chicago before Emmanuel was planted, praying for Emmanuel to be planted. And then after the Lord brought Emmanuel into existence, there have been so many people. One of my greatest privileges, in fact, has been to have a front row seat, to see people open up their living rooms and lives and homes and and, and make disciples of Jesus and share the gospel of Jesus and pray and suffer and forego many other amenities available many other places to stay put and to love and to serve and to pour out. And another one of the privileges is to see the connection, to see how this leads to the flourishing of souls and the healing of hearts and the, rich, the richness of the gospel that we experience in worship on Sundays and the richness of maturity that is filtering out into the people that we are connected to and that we have served. Don't feel pity for them. It was and is their great honor. They are glad to pay the cost. Paul describes it in this way in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, with all his energy that is working powerfully within me. Is Paul expending the energy or is Christ? Yes. Yes, they're in partnership. And the partnership is so deep that you can't separate. You cannot separate Paul's energy from Christ's energy. You cannot separate what Christ is pouring out and what Paul is pouring out. There's an intimacy of paying the cost and joining in the sufferings with Jesus. There is an intimacy with Jesus and this is part of the reward. This is part of the reward is that is the closeness we have with the Lord as we pay the cost. Rather than reducing us It completes us, and the body of Christ is built up. So that's the cost to pay, the sufferings with Christ. Um, What about the treasure to reveal? Let's consider that. The treasure to reveal is the glory of Christ. That's that bronze chest buried that has now been unearthed. Um, Let's read verses 26 and 27 of Colossians 1. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Forrest Fenn's 24 lines of poetry revealed clues, hints, and references that slowly revealed his hidden treasure Um, And this helps us understand the word mystery in um, our text here, verse 26 and 27, talks about mystery. What's mystery? A mystery is something that used to be hidden, but is now out in the open. It used to be hidden. It's out in the open. In some some cases, it's no longer a mystery. It's no longer a secret. Um, Now, for ages and generations, as verse 26 says, for ages and for generations, there was a mystery... To the plan of God. There was something hidden about it. But there were clues, clues given throughout the ages, clues given to whet the appetites um, to the saints. Um, hints, prophecies, pictures, forerunners. And we can read about these in the Old Testament books of the Bible. Angels wanted to know, they yearned to know, what is God's plan? God's up to something. What is it? The the prophets of old, they wanted, they yearned to know, like, can we be the generation that uncovers the box of God's mystery, of his plan? Can we wipe away the dirt? Can we open it up? Can we see what God's been up to? But they got these clues like um, like, uh, a great king. There's going to be a great king coming related to David to last forever. Okay. Well, then there's the suffering servant coming and he's going to bear the sins of the nation, or maybe the world, okay? Well, then there's bread from heaven, you know? And it's like bread from heaven giving life and sustaining you in the wilderness. And then there's something about a temple, a a world's end time temple that the whole world can somehow come to. How does that work? The glory of God fills a temple that the nations can stream to it? There's something about a day of judgment, but it was also kind of like a day of mercy. And how are those things connecting? And there's something about a great lion and something about an innocent lamb and something about sacrifices and mercy and justice and healing and light. But it was like, how are these things all going to come together in the plan of God? What mystery could this be? What law from the mountain could this be? What, what ruler could this be? What healer could this be? What wisdom from on high could this be? And then when the fullness of time came, the final clues were revealed, and the star led them through it, and the shepherds, and the magi, and the teenage uh, Jewish couple, Mary and Joseph were the ones to to unearth the box. And they were the ones who dusted it off, and they were the ones who opened it. And metaphorically speaking, there it was, a 20-inch miracle. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who knew? Who knew? that that was going to be the plan that brought all those images together. Who knew that it could be God's mystery was God himself here on earth, taking on flesh, suffering in the flesh, which becomes our bread, becoming a king who is also a healer, becoming a lamb in his innocence, but yet also a lion in his authority, rising from the dead, yet still having a body, bearing his scars of trauma like trophies, and taking them and us into the presence of the Father in great victory forever, praying for us, becoming our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, inviting us to reign with him forever if we suffer with him now and trust him. What a mystery. What a treasure. Just for a moment, can you run your fingers through the sapphires and gold nuggets of Jesus Christ, his wisdom, his knowledge, his plan, which no one can stop. Um, Paul sums this up, this mystery, this treasure, as Christ in you, and again, plural, Christ in you, plural, Christ in y'all, the hope of glory. You know, physical treasure we can take it on and own it. We could even like turn it into money and spend the money. But we can't really take it into our persons. We can't take it with us when we die. Um, physical treasure really can't power us from the inside. It can be stored or spent or given away. But it can't get inside of us. Christ is a treasure that fills every part of us. It fills our mind, it fills our heart, it fills our body, it fills our common life together, it fills our suffering, it captures our entire human existence, past, present, and future, and brings it into glory, and beautifies it, and makes it transfigured with heavenly light. Along the way, He imparts forgiveness where we are guilty, and He imparts wisdom when we um, are, are confused, and He imparts knowledge and dispels our foolishness. Christ is a treasure. He's a treasure for all of us and for everyone, every culture, every culture that discovers Christ, every generation that discovers Christ, every people that discovers Christ is transformed and is enriched, enriched to find this box. Paul mentions how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. He saw firsthand how Christ freed these Gentiles from corruption and confusion resulting from the paganism that permeated their life and demanded their loyalty. He saw firsthand the treasure um, illumining and enriching the Gentiles. In every every, uh, culture, this is true. In oppressive cultures, where submission and conformity dominates every aspect of life, the treasure of Christ brings freedom freedom from legalism, freedom from shackles to pleasing government or authority figures. In stratified cultures, where people are grouped according to birth and kept in those groups, the treasure of Christ brings dignity and justice to people who have only known shame and oppression. In libertine cultures such as our own, where people are enslaved to their desires and enslaved to their consumption, The treasures of Christ bring freedom and purpose to people who feel dead on the inside. As we pay the cost together, new people and new cultures find the treasure. The sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of his body reveal the glory of Christ. And that leads to a lasting reward to celebrate, a lasting reward to savor In this life and the next, it's an extremely satisfying reward, so much more than money or prestige or security or the Packers losing or the latest flavor of uh, ice cream from Jenny's or whatever it is that we're living for or whatever it is that we think will be the final lasting reward. This reward is so satisfying that once you get a taste of it, it is very difficult to go back. So let's read about it. The reward to celebrate is the maturity of Christ formed in the people that we love. The maturity of Christ, when we see it formed, oh my word, it's a reward. Listen to how Paul described how hard he worked to achieve this reward. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see the progression there? He's warning, he's teaching, and in verse, you know, previous verse, he's, He's, uh, verse 29, struggling with all his energy. He wants to present everyone mature in Christ. And verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. There's no easy path to forming people in the maturity of Christ. It's a fussy process, isn't it? Um, The struggle is real. Yet you have to really get into it with people. Enough to warn them, teach them, love them, uh, struggle on their behalf, like intercede for them, fast for them, forgive them, and pray for them. Patrick Fung is the president of OMF International, and this is the missions agency started by Hudson Taylor years ago. And he gives leadership to about 1,000 missionaries around the world. Now, um... Patrick Fung grew up with some Bible knowledge, but uh, he did not grow up in a Christian home, nor did he grow up with Christian parents. And so um, he didn't actually know Christ himself. When he was a young medical student in Australia, um, he was invited to a Bible study. Some people invited him to a Bible study, which was, you know, intentionally um, invitational to people outside of faith. And um, he went to that Bible study for nine months. And at the end of nine months, uh, he finally got on his knees and he said, okay, Lord, I, you have my life now, and I'm going to follow you. Now, 20 years later, the small group that he was a part of, the Bible study, had a reunion where almost everybody at the Bible study was there. And almost every single person present pulled Patrick Fung aside, and they, they said the same thing to him. They said, they said, Patrick, I was so surprised when you became a Christian. You were so arrogant. You were so argumentative. (laughs) You you were so difficult. Um, And uh, I I was like so blown away. And and to each person, Patrick would be like, I know, me too. And I would just want to say thank you for your, I'm so glad for your patience with me. And I'm so glad for God's patience to me. I'm so glad that you forgave me for how difficult I was to you. And God forgave me for that too. And that he made me a new cre- he made me a new creation. Now the reward of Christ and Patrick, that his small group got to savor twenty years later, required so much of them. It required nine straight months of every week dealing with his with his stuff, oh, you know? like dealing with his his baggage and dealing with his anger and dealing with his arrogance and dealing with his sin and like taking that and not reacting and taking that but forgiving. And, and praying for him, and being patient with him, and being an ambassador of Christ to him. Um, yet 20 years later, how much could they savor, savor it together, that an arrogant man is not, not only humble like Christ, um, but also serving him with everything he has. The spirit of Jesus took Patrick's stubbornness and made him a leader in the footsteps of Hudson Taylor. Praise God, and he's doing it all the time. And he's he's doing it in the midst of those who are willing to pay the cost and savor that reward. When the people we love are formed into the maturity of Christ, this is something to savor and celebrate. It's worth fighting for this reward. It's worth struggling for this reward. Can you picture with me the results? Paul describes a handful of qualities that he's hoping to see in the Colossians. Look with me at um, uh, chapter two, verse two. Um, He talks about encouraged hearts, which means they're no longer downtrodden or filled with anxiety and dread. He talks about them being knit together in love. This is unity, Christian unity. Relationships are healthy and they share a common purpose together. They're not divided and they're not fighting. He also talks about a solid confidence when he says to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and to the knowledge of God. Of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul wants to impart a solid, unshakable confidence in the lives of the Colossians and in us. Um, It's grounded in Christ's wisdom. It's grounded in knowing all that Christ has done for them in the world. It's a confidence that uh, knowing that no matter what life requires of them, they will be able to tap into the treasures of Christ's wisdom and knowledge. You think about, like, when people are encouraged, personally encouraged, when they're unified in a non-forced way, in a way that just is a result of the spirit, and um, when, they're, when they're rightly confident, um, it's like you're full of spiritual antibodies where um, lies and delusions become less interesting to you. The viruses of this world, it's harder for them to infect people who are confident and encouraged. And united with other Christians. And so there's some bad influences and false teachings that Paul wants the Colossians to be so mature in Christ that they're like immune to it. And you can get a taste of this in verses four and five when Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That means plausible arguments are things that like seem right when you hear it. It's like, oh, yeah, that, that feels right to my moral intuition of how the world works. But it's actually not true. It's a scam. It's a scam. And people are trying to scam the Colossians with high piety, high-minded, self-righteous, legalistic um, demands, unilateral on their allegiance. And Paul doesn't want them to fall for it. So he's saying all of this so they won't be led astray and deluded. And he says, for though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your firmness of faith in Christ. So Paul's really glad to see how mature they are. He can see how in good order they are. But he's still concerned enough to write this letter. And we're going to get into this next week when we as he, Paul begins to go into some of the plausible arguments that are, um, that are uh, sort of wafting among the Colossians. And Paul's gonna like try to dispel the spell and bring them back to Christ. But Paul does see some maturity here and he calls it out and he celebrates it. He savors it. Um, what if our greatest treasure and reward as a church could be to celebrate when the maturity of Christ is formed in people, among the next generation of our church? What if we celebrated uh, the maturity of Christ being formed in the next generation? What if we celebrated the maturity of Christ being formed among those who don't know him yet, people like Patrick Fung, who are rude and resistant to the gospel right now? What if we celebrate the maturity of Christ that is formed among those who have rejected the Christian faith, or are in the process of rejecting the Christian faith, who at some point get a new vision of Christ and his church, as so many have um, through Emmanuel. What if we celebrated the maturity of Christ and made that our treasure? Can we picture the day when they will be the ones to unearth the bronze box, run their fingers through the treasures, and make the, the treasures of Christ, the glory of Christ, their own? And they are to the point where they are full of the Spirit's wisdom, full of the Spirit's power, full of the Spirit's fruit. It's worth the personal cost, my friends. It is worth the cost that we pay with Jesus of spending our energy and time, of forgiving and pleading and teaching, of opening up our living rooms and hearts to include and encourage them, to forgive them, to fast and pray on their behalf, to disciple them. It's worth the vulnerability of being a wounded healer in a high-performing city. The cost is temporary. The reward is eternal. At the beginning of my message, I shared with you about Forrest Fenn and his buried treasure. Forrest Fenn parceled out only $2 million worth of his treasure, jewels, gold, and diamonds. Jesus Christ gave everything he has, his life, his death, and his future glory. His treasure cannot fade, cannot rust. Many people plotted, planned, and suffered to obtain Forrest Fenn's prize, yet only one person actually found and claimed the buried treasure. The riches of Christ are found not just by one lucky winner, but are offered to all. And the clues to find this treasure are not embedded in some cryptic poem only available to be deciphered by the sophisticated elite. They are an open secret available to everyone and anyone, and we have the people. We are the clues that show the people of Chicago, our friends, neighbors, coworkers, loved ones, the treasure of Christ. Let us emulate Paul, who takes joy and suffering to make this treasure accessible to everyone the Lord sends our way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.